But the Lord knows in our hearts what we need. And He is the fulfillment of the Scripture. Jesus said, you search the Scripture, for in it you think you have eternal life. And it is that which testifies of me, and still you won't come to me that you might have life. Because He is the life, and the Scripture guides us to Him, and it reveals Him. And it reveals Him in ways that we can't understand. And it's such a great thing to actually just hear the Scripture verses, because Jesus said, the word that I speak to you cleanses you. And the Word of God itself, in a way that we don't understand, cleans us. It just makes us feel clean. If you sit down and read 20 verses and get up, it just cleans out things. Now, we had a bad move at our house. I try not to share too much before lunch, but we had a clogged drain. Clogged drains are no fun. Um, Helen's approach to clogged drains are fairly simple. You start with liquid plumber. You put it in there. If that doesn't work, you call Jim. And that's her approach to drains. And I usually try liquid plumber again. And then you got to get out the snake and then go after it. It's not fun. I'm not going to go into the details. But when you have something clogged up like that, you're very aware when things aren't clean. You know, when you see the water coming back up and out, I won't even talk about toilets, but you know what the problem looks like when it's not there. The Scripture, even hearing the words of Jesus cleanses us. It's such an important thing. And it guides us into him. And Jesus also said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. And so, Don, how can the words of Jesus be spirit and life? And I can't answer that question. But Jesus said that's the case. And when you listen to his words, it imparts life unto your body. I'm always impressed in the scripture how it talks about how much an encouraging word does to lift your spirit. If someone just comes up to you and says, you know, you can do that. Irene, you can do that. Just that encouraging word lifts your spirit. If someone comes up to you and says, boy, is the mountain big. You know, I, I'm, I think both Don and Deborah are freshmen. Alexis, you're a sophomore. Is that right? See, I, I learned these things. And so when you're a freshman and you're looking at all of college, you're going, yeah, this is a lot to do. When you're a sophomore, you go, hey, I did the freshman year. I'll just do one or two or three more of these. I'll be out of here. You know, but we have a funny feeling in life because when you're starting college, everybody tells you, okay, you're going to really learn things here. But when you graduate from college, you go, hmm, I don't really know very much. That turns out to be true of every single thing that you take where you learn. You think you're going to get it all down, and at the end you go, I know some more, but overall I don't know very much. But when Jesus comes, he changes everything. And a very important verse is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are all new creations. Now, when you look at what the enemy is going to try to do, Suzanne, he's going to try to come back and say, you're not that much different. All the old baggage is still there. You say you're in Christ, but all those things that were in your life, I'm going to show you they're still there. But they're not. But he comes that way, and you need to know, we need to know, 
and recognize the ploys of the enemy. So when he comes that way, we go, that's just his standard way of coming. That's what he does. He comes and tries to steal, kill, and destroy, but he is the father of lies. And when you recognize there's going to be a voice that comes to you that is the father of lies, you go, wait a second, I got to pay attention. The father of lies tries to take me down. Jesus said to Peter that Satan had especially requested to sift him. Have you ever felt like you were being sifted? I think some of you have. I'm all the time telling God about how he should change circumstances. And God is all the time telling me about how I should get close to him and not be so concerned about the circumstances. But God allows us to be tested so that we'll be stronger, not so that we'll fail. And he said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation that is common to, is, can overtake you except what is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond your strength. But with the temptation will provide a means of escape that you may be able to endure it. So that when we're tempted or tested, the Bible says God puts a governor on it. So it can never be beyond our strength. That doesn't mean it doesn't feel beyond our strength. Because often it does feel beyond our strength. Have you ever gotten up in the morning and looked at the day and said, if I can just make it till the night, I don't know how I'm going to go through the day. Or sometimes you look at the week and you go, if I can just make it to Saturday. You know, talking with Candy, her, her daughter sitting over in Thailand and she lives in China, but she's in Thailand and she can't get back to China. And if you think about what you've got to do this week, just think if you can't get to the country where your house is. That's a little bit of a detail. So God brings tremendous things in Christ and says, you are a new creation. The enemy comes back and says, you're still the old person. So it's very important for us to take hold of these verses that Jesus makes all things new. Now from the beginning, Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit intended that there be two creations. There was the first creation, and we're in that right now. And then there's to be a second creation, which Candy read the verses for me on in Revelation 21, where he is going to take everything, all the heavens, the earth, the universe, and everything that we have now, and say, all that is done. And we're opening up a new creation. And this new creation is really different. And we talked last time about in the first creation, God made way that we could choose him. And he calls unto us that we choose him. And that because he opens the way for us to choose him, it means that there's a way for us not to choose him. If you don't choose God, that is what evil is, is not choosing God. Because God is all that is good, and not choosing God is the definition of evil. But because God made us, Alexis, so that we could freely choose him and weren't robots, but we had a choice whether to choose him or not, then there had to be evil. But the scripture says that there is only evil in the first creation. In the second creation, Satan and all of his angels are cast into the lake of fire. And there is no more evil, there is no more pain, there is no more suffering, there is no more death. And the Bible says God will tabernacle or be with people 
and he will be their God, and they shall be his people. The first creation lasts just for a short period of time. Oh, I don't know, a few billion years or so. That's all. The next creation is unending. Uh, we're going to get together in heaven, Sasha, and go, can't remember earth anymore. All I can remember it was, was this fast. Because the amount of time we're here is, I don't know, 100 years or so, excepting Don Murphy. You know, that's all the time we're here. We just have 100 years or so, or 90 or 80 or something like that. But when we pass on to be with him, there will be a new creation. And Jesus said it's something very much rejoicing. You should rejoice over that your names are written in the book of life, that you'll be there. But one of the things that the enemy tries to keep us working on in our old self is he wants us to stay in the flesh and not move into the spirit. To stay in the flesh and not move in the spirit. Now, before I was a Christian, I basically had this gut feel, you shouldn't do bad things. There were good reasons not to do that, especially my parents let me know that you don't do bad things, not only verbally, okay? And, and I knew that there was a right and a wrong, you shouldn't do bad things, but I basically looked at the world on how many bad things have I done compared to how many good things have I done. And so long as I kept a decent ratio, I didn't feel too bad. I'm not saying I had a decent ratio, but I, con I, convict I convinced myself I did. I just do a bunch of good things, and I have some bad things, but I'm trying to outweigh them. And if God came to me and, and said to me, you know, that the wages of sin is death, that would scare me. I don't like that. I want him to say to me, your ratio looks pretty good. Your good things versus your bad things looks pretty good, so I'm going to accept you. But the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that there is no distinction among sinners. No distinction among sinners. And so there was a tremendous feeling of kind of earning by works the approval of God, which completely changes when Jesus came as the free gift of God. Jesus came as the free gift of God. And instead of living by the flesh and generating works, when Jesus came, he said, I'm going to bring my spirit into you, and instead of living by the flesh, you're going to live by my spirit that's within you. And that is a complete change in the way that we live. A complete change in the way we live. And Paul, when he was talking to the Galatians, made such a point of this, and he started off the verse in Galatians 3.3 by saying, Oh, you foolish Galatians. You know, it's not necessarily the like term. I mean, if Celia walked up to me and said, Oh, you foolish Jim. I know the next part's not going to be good, you know. But Paul started off, Oh, you foolish Galatians. Have you started with the Spirit of God and now you seek to obtain perfection in the flesh? Oh, you foolish Galatians. Because the enemy comes and tries to pull you away from walking in the Spirit of God, tries to get you to back walk in the flesh. Now, when we walk in the Spirit of God, the Bible says that we see things from a different perspective. And I just can't emphasize this enough because your perspective is something that the Lord works on in a mighty way. You know, I constantly use this example, and I'm going to use it more if I... 
if I just walked around with a 10-foot angel that had a 7-foot flaming sword, just a 7-foot flaming sword. And Don, just imagine I went on to the Emory campus, me and my angel, his name's Richard, okay? Me and my angel Richard, and we walked onto the Emory campus, and everybody could see me and Richard. And I said, well, I've got a few things to say to you. I think they would pay attention. Do you see? But we walk with someone who is infinitely greater than a 10-foot angel with a 7-foot flaming sword. He who has no beginning and has no end puts his spirit within us and walks with us every day. That completely transforms the way that we look at life and events and circumstances. The enemy is constantly coming and saying and pushing, you are alone. How are you going to get through? How will you handle this? How will you overcome this difficulty? And when you hear or sense a voice that's pushing that inside of you, it's always the enemy. Because the enemy isolates and focuses on fleshly abilities rather than letting Christians get together, bolster one another, and focus on the one for whom all things are possible. Do you see the difference? It's a gigantic difference. And so that kind of fleshly look versus that we're walking in the Spirit is the most gigantic change. So when we walk out of our houses or our dorms or wherever we're walking out into the world each day, we're never walking alone. We're always walking with Him. It is a tremendous assurance to know it's not my responsibility to order my steps. It's God's responsibility to order my steps. For the scripture says, the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. Okay, so this concept of fleshly things has a lot to do in one big area that I want to touch on first, and that's guilt. Guilt is a rough thing. Uh, I, I listened to somebody this week say, oh, that bad thing happened, it must have been my fault. And they were not tangentially related to the event, but they were just willing to assume guilt. And many of us too often are willing to assume guilt. We look at our children or we look at people we don't, and we go, well, that didn't turn out exactly the right, it's probably me. Yes, probably me. Yes, sir, they they needed more milk between three months and nine months. That was it, their brain cells didn't grow, that's why they're not doing good in school. Must have been me. You know, that was it. They called out to me in the middle of the night, and I turned over and went back to sleep, and I should have gotten up, and they just felt rejected, ran through their whole life. All the problems they're having, that's me, and that's what we do. And we're willing just to take on that guilt. And the enemy knows that, and Jesus knows that. So one of the things that the Scripture is absolutely emphatic about is I want you to know that all of your sins, all of the things that were done wrong, all of that has been completely replaced, and you are to be free of guilt. Now, I want to make an emphasis on this, because lots of Christians take on guilt as kind of a spiritually mature thing to do, as if it's associated with humility. 
And so they'll say, yeah, no, that's me, that's my fault, yeah, I'm bad, I'm this, that, and the other. But the Scripture not, does not say that any time about a Christian, that a Christian is supposed to get up and say, I'm bad. The Bible says we're to confess our sins. But it doesn't say we're to get up and say, I'm bad. Because the nature of the Most High comes and dwells within us. And Paul says, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And one of the reasons he said, don't you know, is because people don't know and they don't act like it. They act like the Holy Spirit is over there. And if I can maneuver conditions the right way, I'll bring the Holy Spirit near me and maybe really good blessings will happen. So let's try to get the Holy Spirit to come. And you hear people saying, let's try to call down the Holy Spirit. I want to give you a clue. The Holy Spirit is here and lives within you right now and does not have to be called down. He is here. He is within us. And our minds are not set to see that we've been renewed and accepted into the family of God. We, we are just like the prodigal son who came home and confessed that he had made big mistakes. And the father is just like the father in that parable. And he didn't say to his son, I am glad after three years you finally realized how wrong you were and how right I was. And yeah, I'll give you some slop job to do and you can come and live in my house. That's not what he said. He didn't say anything at the beginning. He hugged him. Did you notice that? He came up to him and hugged him. And when you hug somebody, that's a full acceptance. That's a, I want you here. That's a hug. And he said, put on him the robe and let's kill the fatted calf to rejoice. The robe signified that he was a member of the family and not a servant. And you say, well, how could Jesus do that to me? Oh, he's already done it. He has already pulled us in. He has already put the robe on us and said, you are in my family. You are no longer a servant. You are in my family. That Jesus be the firstborn among many brethren. So the scripture is very clear on that. But we are still subject to it. We still have trouble with guilt. And we look at things and we say, I probably had a role in that. I'm, I'm messing things up. So some of the verses I want to share today are just to get guilt out. Get guilt out of the picture. So the first verse is in Romans 3. And this is seven verses, so this is a long read. Romans 3, 19 through 26. And Paul had to really deal with this because the Jews were so stuck in the law as the path to God that they had fleshly works as the single way that you're going to get to God. Now listen to these verses. These are great verses. Romans 3, 19 through 26. And so Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now the law is important, and in the scripture, and right here it says, through the law, 
we know what sin is. Because God says these are not the right things to do, these are the right things to do, and the law lets us know what sin is. But he says here, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So the law cannot get us approval from God. It cannot get us there. But then reading on, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of His righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul says that God set the law to show us what was right and wrong, but he brought justification freely in Christ, who was the propitiation or the sacrificial lamb or the payment for our sin. And the reason I'm focusing on this so much is there has to be a clear understanding in our lives that guilt no longer has a place. Now, the Lord will come into us and He will stir us and He will convict us of sin because the Holy Spirit says He will do that. That the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. But guilt is not what God is putting on us because Jesus has taken the payment that justifies us. And he makes so clear in this verse that we're justified not because we can do all these works, but because of what Jesus did. And that good news is stunning, but we can't let it just be up here in our heads. It's got to be something that penetrates our whole lives. God does not desire for me to be walking in guilt. And if I am letting guilt hang around in my life, it's something that God wants to get rid of and that God can get rid of. We are not to be walking around going, well, I am guilty, lots of things happened in the world, if I'm honest, it just was me. You know, you can't, you can't, can't, that is not the way God wants us to be. And so the scripture says then, if the enemy was kind of coming in and saying, well, yeah, that's for people who haven't got really bad sins, but Don, you have really bad sins. And so God kind of takes care of the nice people and when they said bad things about others and stuff like this. But you and I know you have bad sins in your life. And so you've got, you can't really expect that this grace of God through Jesus Christ covers you. He covers the pretty good people, but you're not in the pretty good category. Would the enemy say something like that all the time? He says things like that. It applies to everybody, but not really you, because you and I know how you are. But God, so faithful is he. In Isaiah 118, he says, Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. 
You see, to God, he can reach down and forgive the greatest sin. Jesus forgave the people who were killing him while he was on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus reaches down to the ugliest sin and brings the most wonderful love and grace. For the scripture where it says, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. There is no sin that grace cannot redeem. And Jesus is the grace that redeems. And we have to have that in our lives, and we have to have it real in our lives, so we don't walk around with this, well, it's okay, but it's really applying to other people. The other thing about it is that the enemy will come in and make us feel guilty because he reminds us of sins. He just reminds us, oh yeah, you're a Christian now, but boy, you did some bad things, and I'm just going to remind you of that. And God knows this. God thinks about all these things, Deborah, and what you did when you were 15 years old. Oh yeah, he knows about that. But there's such a tremendous verse in Scripture to help us with how God looks at sin after he's forgiven it. And it's in Jeremiah 31, verse 34. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Did you know that God can forget sin that has been forgiven? Well, I'm going, yeah, but he's, he knows everything, so he still knows about it. The scripture says he forgets. He does not remember the sin anymore. Now, the enemy will come to you and say, oh, no, 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 no. God keeps a secret book. There's the open book, and then there's the secret book. And in the secret book, he can always call out your sins and smash you with them at any time. He hadn't forgotten about them. It's not what the Scripture says. It says that he remembers sin no more. Now, if you get to heaven and you ask God about something that he has forgiven, and you say, and friend, you go, well, Lord, do you remember when I did this, this, and this, and I know that was bad? And he goes, no, I don't remember. He doesn't remember sin anymore. He said, well, that sounds too good to be true. Many, many, if not most things about God sound too good to be true. That's the way he is. In Psalm 103, 12, it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west. He takes our transgressions and he sends them sailing. They're gone. In his mind, they're totally gone, as far as the east is from the west. So when the enemy comes and brings former sin, former difficulties, former guilt, you are the root of so many bad branches. Does he say things like that? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. When we have circumstances and we can't explain the circumstances, he often says, God is doing this because you're such a lousy person he has to do these things to you. That's the way he talks. That's exactly the way he talks. And we've talked just recently that Jesus always comes with a positive message of rescue, not a message of condemnation. 
So when Jesus is coming to point something out, it never is, you're bad. It is, let me rescue you from this thing which has you in bondage. Because sin puts you in bondage, and Jesus rescues you from that bondage. So when you're discerning voices coming at you, don't think, this is just God disciplining me. If God is disciplining you, He is always bringing us from a place of bondage to a place of freedom, which is from a place of sin to a place where sin has been removed. But He's always bringing us out of the miry pit, out of the miry clay, out of the pit. He's always bringing us out. He's not saying, it's terrible that you're stuck in the miry clay, but it's your fault. That's not Jesus. Jesus is, take my hand. And he pulls us up and out. He recognizes we're in a pit. He recognizes we're in the miry clay. But he doesn't come and just point at us. He just says, I want to rescue you from there. But when you hear a voice that just talks to you about, it's your fault you're in the miry clay. It's your fault that you're in the pit. It's your fault that this thing has happened. That's the enemy. And in Revelation, it says that the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. Revelation 12.10. The enemy is the accuser of the brethren, and he accuses them night and day before the Father. So his natural way is to come, <coughs> excuse me, natural way is to come and accuse. And John, this is important because this week that we're facing on, eight, nine, ten times for sure, the enemy will come at you and accuse you. He will accuse you. He will say, you have done these things that have resulted in these bad things, and it's your fault. And he always leaves you as the accused, feeling like you're responsible and at fault. That's how he leaves you. We need to get the enemy away. We need to push back. The scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And he will flee from you. But we do need to resist him. Resisting the devil is not... This is an interesting idea. Let's talk about this. Once we discern that it's the devil, the Scripture says resist him. Push him back. But this is what he'll say. And then again, when Jesus said... In the Scripture, it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do two things. To forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we confess sins to the Lord... He transforms us, and he says, not only are you forgiven, but now you're cleaned. You're spanking clean. You know, I've put things in a dishwasher before, and I said, I don't know if this dishwasher can handle this. We actually have a good dishwasher, and it comes out amazingly clean. But Jesus comes out clean, 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 clean. I mean, it's just really clean. Clean from all unrighteousness. Jesus has us coming out cleansed from all unrighteousness. So God will cleanse our conscience from dead works, it says in Hebrews 9, to serve the living God. And in John 1.29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, his first words about Jesus, this is John the Baptist, who had a prophetic role to prepare the way for the Lord, do you remember his first words about Jesus when he saw him? In John 1.29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Now, he didn't say, behold the Lamb of God who convicts the world of sin. It's not what he said. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who takes it away. Who takes it away. That means it's gone. Jesus doesn't come and discuss the sin of the world. He removes the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. Now, a lot of times we have this in our head, but the way that we walk is he doesn't do that at all. That I I'm battled sin before I was a Christian, and now I'm battling sin, and I have a little more power, and that's me. That's not the way the Scripture says it's to be. We are to be more than conquerors in this battle. And the Scripture says that Jesus takes away the sin. So the enemy will come in and say, you're guilty, there's still sin here, you're a failure. In my life, he comes in and says, how long have you been a Christian? By now, you shouldn't even be dealing with this. You're a failure because you're dealing with this. How can you even talk about these things? How can you read that scripture when you have trouble with that in your life? Da-da-da-da-da. He is the accuser of the brethren. He makes sin look like it has a home within you. And God is just sitting there going, I'm not grading you, I'm holding you. I'm lifting you up in my arms. I am restoring you. I am with you. And he greets you like the father greets the prodigal son. And he greets us every day now because we are grafted in to his family. We are now in the family of God, sons and daughters of the Most High. So the scripture says one verse that I'm just going to close this little thing on guilt on. But it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, Suzanne, I had tremendous difficulties with this, because if you say to me that I might become the righteousness of God, I am so aware of things in me that are unrighteous, I can't think of myself as the righteousness of God. But if this verse had ended that we might become the righteousness of God in ourselves, we would have a problem. But it doesn't say that. It says that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. In Christ. God, when we come into Christ and He lives in us, He transforms us into the righteousness of God. This is hard for the regular mind to take into account. But God confers a righteousness on us that is the righteousness of His Son, because we are in his son. So it'd be kind of like, um, you know, some of y'all knew my dad. My dad was a character. And, but I was in my father's family. And I have my father's name. And I have my father's name because I'm in his family. Now, I don't do anything to merit that name. It's just the name that I got. Because I'm in his family. God takes us in and accepts us. And because we are His and His family, a righteousness is conferred upon us that is given to His sons and daughters who are in Christ. So God views us looking through the mercy seat of Jesus' blood and sees us as righteous because of what Jesus did. 
I'm not going to dwell on that too long, but it's a tremendous thing to help with guilt. God is looking at things totally different than the way we look at things. So we need to be wary of those tricks of the enemy. And if for any reason there is guilt that persists in our life, we need to make sure we bring that before the Lord and say, what is this that's causing me to feel guilty? Um, you know, we, I've run into people recently, I didn't ever do this, but they make life plans. Have you ever heard of that? Life plans? I had a lady in my office that was 25, 26, and she had a life plan. And her life plan was this three years, you do this, and this is what, you know, Candy was sharing. And then this next four years, we're going to do this, and then after that, we're going to do this. And by this time, such and such will happen. And she had things planned out 25, 30 years. You know, and I'm sitting there going, and I listened to that, and I go, I'd never really heard of a life plan before. It's not bad. She's just planning ahead the things that she's going to do. Now, I'd love to talk to her in 30 years and see where she ended up, you know, my mom tells a story that is an interesting story about a woman in the 1950s who wrote a book about how to raise children. And the only catch was she didn't have any children. So she wrote a book describing a very orderly family that things proceeded in a very orderly manner and there was great respect for one another and da-da-da-da-da. And then she had two daughters. And about 16 years later, she wrote another book about raising children. And in this book, she said, we have an absolute rule in our house. There's a rule in our house that is not violated. We have an, a rule you have to adhere to. And that rule is this, Suzanne. When you go to bed at night, there has to be a path from your door to the bed. Things had changed pretty dramatically once you walked the walk. I think in our family we did pretty good on that. I think we still we had a path from their door to the bed pretty well. I actually felt pretty good when she said that. Lots of people have plans, and when the action starts, the plans change. General Patton used to say, all battle plans work until the battle begins. All project plans work until the project begins. All of the day's plans work until the day begins. But you see, God is up and above and knows these things. He is up and above and walking with us. He means for us to take tremendous strength from abiding in Him. I personally believe reading John 15 once a week helps me incredibly. Just to know to abide in the vine and that if I abide in Him, He will abide in me. I'm not taking on freshman chemistry by myself. Jesus and I are taking on freshman chemistry together. When I was in medical school, I don't think I could have gotten through, except the Lord did things that just encouraged me and strengthened me in times I just didn't have strength. And He is able to do that. So the Scripture then summarizes by saying, there, therefore is, in Romans 8:1 no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And in John 3.17, Jesus said that if you believe in Him, you have passed from the judgment. If you believe in Him, you are not judged. In John 3.17. The Scripture says things that are so wonderful to get this guilt burden off of us. So I want to encourage you, when guilt kind of tries to drift in, and you to say, well, I would have been if I not made these mistakes, 
The Lord doesn't ever see it that way. He, he doesn't ever see it that way, and we need to push back because that's the voice of the enemy. And the second thing I want to briefly talk on is futility and despair. Boy, that, that sounds like a downer, doesn't it? Futility and despair. But the reason I want to mention it is this is what Jesus makes when he says, I make all things new. He gets rid of futility and despair. In Luke 18, 1, the Bible says, And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that men should never be discouraged, but should pray. He told them a parable to the effect that men should never be discouraged, but should pray. I want to ask the Lord to put a marker on your life for every single time that you're pushed towards discouragement this week. How many times does something come into your life that could push you towards discouragement, that the enemy could use to push you to be discouraged? Because he's the accuser of the brethren. He puts us into bondage. He's all about discouragement and bondage. And many things come in our life. And like I said, the first thing the enemy will say is, how are you going to handle it? Not how are you and Jesus going to handle it? Because once you recognize it's you and Jesus handling it, he can do anything. He can do anything. I was in the seventh grade at one time, believe it or not. I had a full head of hair, and I even knew Fran at that time. And so um, I remember going to school one time, and Alexis, um, it ended up that I got to school with two socks of different color. Now, when you're in the seventh grade, it actually matters to you what other people think about you. Do you remember that? I don't know if you all remember. I don't see too many heads shaking. It mattered to me what people thought about me. And I very carefully kept my left foot and my right foot far from each other. So if you looked at me, you wouldn't be able to see of the two socks that they didn't match. Now, in fairness, one was blue and one was black. And early in the morning in your room when it's dimly lit, it's hard to tell apart. But I did have a blue and a black sock on. And the Lord got a hold of me later in my life, and he said, the answer to that, had somebody come up to you and started laughing at you because you were wearing two different colored socks, is that you should say, I have a pair just like them at home. But do you see, we would look at somebody in the seventh grade and go, it does not matter what socks you are wearing one day to school. But that day at school, Don, it mattered to me. It mattered to me. I was so afraid somebody was going to see that. God is like that with us. Many things to us discourage us or call us down or we go, how am I going to do this? And God is saying to us, I'm going to try to lift you up and out of that. Where you see, I'm with you. And because I'm there, all these other things don't matter. They just don't matter. They just don't matter. Now, when you're in love, you're a lot like that. When, <clears throat> when Helen and I were engaged, I didn't call up Helen and say, could you think of something really good for us to do Friday night? If you can think of something really good, well, then I'll come over to your house and we'll be together. And if Helen says, well, I haven't got any really good thing planned, um, but just come over anyway. I said, well, I'm not coming anyway. You've got to have something good planned. Well, you're not in love if that's the way you see things. Because people are in love. <coughs> it doesn't matter to them what they're doing. It's who they're with. 
People that are in love can play with a paper clip. They can shoot each other with a rubber band. They can take long walks next to a river and not even talk. They do weird things because they like to be together. You see, that's where Jesus is pulling us. Don't you see I'm with you? How can it bother you what we're going to do? It's that I'm here. And we need to value him and see he's so valuable that now circumstances actually don't matter. Now, I'm not saying by any means I am in that place because I've hit a few circumstances and called out to the Lord and said, I don't like this. I would like this to change. <clears throat> but he is always encouraging me. I'm there. I'm here. And because he's there, everything is different because he is the fullness of life. Circumstances are not the fullness of life. But he is the fullness of life. So, one of the things that the enemy comes and says is, you know, the wicked, they prosper. The people who don't pay attention to God, they're making money. This person who's a very bad person is, is cheating these people and, and scooping money away from them. And they keep prospering. And why is it that God lets that happen? And I'm not going to read all the verses because we don't have time, but I'm going to give you the Scripture reference. And it's Psalm 73 and verses 2 through 26. But in the first part of those verses, he goes through and says, I look at the wicked and they are prospering. He says, for their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men. They're not plagued like everybody else. Pride is their necklace. A garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. They speak as from on high. Their tongue parades through the earth. And the psalmist was calling out and saying, God, how can you be fair and have all these people prosper that are not godly people? And he said that he was really befuddled by this until one thing happened. And that one thing he says was I was troubled in my sight until I came in to the sanctuary of God. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. And then when I came into the sanctuary of God, I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction, how they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Now the psalmist could not see or recognize how there was any justice related to the wicked until he came into the sanctuary of God. Most things in our Christian life don't make sense until we are in the sanctuary of God. And what do I mean by that? Till I mean that we are close and talking with Him and given over to Him and our heart and our mind is given to Him. And then He opens up a wisdom that is not a wisdom of this world. And in the sanctuary of God, we can see things that we can't see by reasonings of men. 
Because the reasonings of men would say, well, you've got more money, you've got more this, you've got this. Suddenly, cut off and destroyed, overcome with terrors. Because the end of the wicked is very rough. And any time before that is transient because they're cut off without remedy. So the scripture says that when the psalmist came into the sanctuary of God, his eyes were open. His eyes were open. Now, you know in the story of Elisha, when his servant went out to the well to get some water, and he looked up and he saw the encampments and the hosts of the enemy on the mountains all around them. And the servant panicked and ran back to Elisha and said, in essence, we are done for. We are done for. But what did Elisha say to the servant? He said to God, open the eyes of my servant. Now, very interesting, he didn't say, God, please send help. We are in trouble. And the reason I say that is, lots of my prayers are, God, please send help. I'm in trouble. A lot of my prayers are that way. But Elisha didn't say, God, please send help. We're in trouble. Elisha said, open the eyes of my servant. And when the servant's eyes were opened, he looked at the hosts that were round about on the mountains and saw above them legions of angels. Now, remember, Elisha didn't pray, God, send angels. He just said, open the eyes of my servant. When you're in the sanctuary of God, you see that God has provided. He doesn't need to be prompted. God knows what he's doing, and he's set it up in the best way. But I love the story of Elisha and his servant because I always thought, well, now since he's shown them the angels, the angels are going to come through and do mighty battle and tear up the enemy. And there's certainly precedent for that in the Old Testament. More than one time it says one angel came into the encampment of the enemy and killed 185,000 men in one night. You do not want to mess with an angel. And God had legions of angels. And I was thinking, this is going to be it. But God, I don't know why he did this, chose not to use the angels. He didn't even use the angels. He struck the army blind that was attacking Israel so they couldn't see. And they came down, and Elisha took the army and led them to the king of Israel. And in so many words, the king of Israel said, What are you doing bringing this army to me? What am I supposed to do with them? Now at this point, you're thinking, this is going to be a profound statement in the Old Testament. We need to pay attention to what Elisha says. Because he's captured the enemy, and he's brought them in. What did he say? And you know what Elisha said? You'll love this. He said, feed them breakfast. Feed them breakfast. And the king of Israel did feed them breakfast, and the blindness was removed, and the people went away, and the scripture says that that country never again warred against Israel. Now, if we have in our lives things like the story of Elijah, the things that are around on the mountains are the circumstances that we're looking at that certainly look like they have enclosed us and are going to take us down. Those are the enemy that's on the hill. 
And there's a voice from the enemy, from Satan, saying, there's no way you're going to get out of this. You see, they're all around you. They're all around you. When people have panic attacks, they feel there is no escape. That is the essence of a panic attack. I cannot escape. The essence of what the enemy does is to say, you cannot get through. You cannot make it. And that's what he does. But God, even as much as he had angels there, has an angel for each one of us. You know, the scripture says, don't you know, for each child there's an angel who beholds the face of the Father. I spent about three years asking God what was my angel's name. He never told me. But I asked, maybe he'll tell you. I want to meet my angel when I go to heaven and say, thank you. I think there were a few times he saved my life. But we all have angels. But beyond angels, we have the Son of God living within us. Way beyond an angel. And so God knows how to maneuver things. But if we're not in his sanctuary, if we deal with God like emails and send God a request and want to get a response back in five or ten minutes, if that's our relationship with God, we're not in his sanctuary. And then when we don't see things the way he sees them, it should not surprise us because we're not with him. We're not abiding in him. And if we don't abide in him, we don't see things the way that he does. And we come up with explanations that are very bothersome. And they're bothersome to us. And they're bothersome to God. So he's saying, I'm inviting you into my sanctuary. And this indeed is how the psalm ends. Because in verse 25 and 26 of Psalm 73, it says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When you're abiding in the sanctuary of the Lord, you're aware of the frailty of your own fleshly abilities. But you're not worried about that, because God is your portion. God is our portion. And when God is our portion... He is the strength of my heart. Rather than having a fainting heart that is discouraged or feels futile, we have a heart of strength because God provides the strength. There, was, there are tremendous stories about this, and I know Irene can tell, share stories about this. But in the Scripture, there are lots of examples where God calls on people to be faithful for an extended period of time without showing any visible evidence that God is doing anything. Just talking about Joshua taking on the battle of Jericho. He told the people to walk around Jericho three times the first day, and they did. And when they went back to camp, nothing visible had happened. So what was the plan for the next night? The plan for the next night was to do the same thing. Well, what about the next night? Well, the next night was to do the same thing. Now, you imagine you're a soldier in Joshua's army, and it's Thursday night, and you've been marching around four days in a row, and nothing has changed, and the people on the wall are jeering at you, saying, you idiots, in so many words, and you're just walking around, obeying God, seeing nothing change. Now, I I want to kind of describe this, because I think it's true of many people, it's true of me, I want God to proportionately respond. 
And by that, I mean if I pray a bunch today, I want to see a little progress. If I pray a bunch more tomorrow, I want to see a little progress. If I pray some more the next day, I want to see some progress. I don't go with this pray, see nothing, pray, see nothing, pray, see nothing. And what do you want me to do? Keep praying. Um, Pray, see nothing, pray, see nothing. I don't know how many that is, but once you get to day seven, they were obedient. But if I had been in that army on Thursday night, I would have gone, I don't know about Joshua. You know, maybe he hasn't got both oars in the water. Possibly his elevator doesn't go to the top. Because we keep doing the same thing, and if it's fruitless, why should we keep doing the same thing? And so it's very important that we know the Scripture, that there is no such thing as a fruitless thing with God, but that we also know that God is not given to proportional response. He might proportionally respond. He can do that. But he is perfectly able to take it for a long time, and then all of a sudden, exactly the way he did it with Joshua, bring down the enemy in one fell swoop, and the thing which obstructs you falls away instantly, and it's gone. Now, if we were talking to Joshua's army, we would go, just be patient. Don't you know God is always faithful? Because we know the story. Do You see, we know the end of the story. So we would go, don't be idiots. Listen, if you'll just hang on and do what God says, don't you know always to do what God says? Can't you know by now God knows what he's doing? And then God turns to us and says, don't you know that God always knows what he's doing? Don't you know that I'm always faithful? This is true at work. Uh, they teach us these things, and, and I was kind of talking back to somebody, and I said, well, you know, if you supervise people, you expect all of them to work well together with people who are lateral to them because you're over the whole group. But if somebody asks you, how well do you work laterally with people to you, you have all these excuses why that doesn't always work out. Do You see, lots of things apply when they apply to other people. But when they come into my life, well, there are reasons, you see, that that doesn't really apply. God is always faithful. He was faithful with the children of Israel. He's faithful with us. In Romans 15, 4, it says that all those things which were written in former days were written for our encouragement that we might cherish hope. In Romans 15, 4, what was written in the former days? What was written in the former days was the Old Testament. And what's written in the Old Testament? The Old Testament is story after story after story after story where God calls people, people respond or don't respond, and every single person who followed after God was glad they did. And every single person who did not follow after God wished they had. In every story. And how many stories are there? Hundreds of stories. And in every story, that's true. Those who followed after God always were glad they did. Those who didn't follow after God always wished they had. However, every story has different circumstances. You have people doing all sorts of things, fighting wars, plagues, bondage, slavery. Everything is in the Old Testament like that. And God is showing he's faithful in all things. I could just see God being very upset with me going, Jim, if you read all that, why is it that you ever question my faithfulness? And I have no answer for that. It's the stupidest thing I ever do is to question his faithfulness. 
But instead of saying, I'm not going to feel in despair or discouraged, I find myself going, why are these circumstances this way? Why? I'll share this story one more time again, because probably by the end of this, you're going to go, well, I don't know if we should listen to this guy, Jim, anymore. He's got so many mistakes he made in his life. Well, I haven't made a lot of mistakes. Um, But I had a situation at night, and... It was one of these things, and Dick, you'll probably know this, that when things go wrong at home, they seem to go wrong in the evening rather than in the early morning. It's like it's time to go to bed and something goes wrong. So without going into the details, we had trouble with the toilet that had to be fixed. And without getting into that too deep, it turns out you had to go to Home Depot to get the part. I couldn't fix it with the parts that were there. Well, for those of you who don't know, Home Depot closes at 10 o'clock. I didn't know that. But I looked it up really quick, and it was quarter till 10. Well, it's about 10 minutes from my house, and you've got to jump in the car and dash to make that work. So I was jumping in the car, dashing, hoping I could get there before they shut the doors. But on the way, I was praying. Praying. I mean, I was talking to God. That is praying. And I told God, now look, you order all things. There is nothing that benefits the kingdom of God for this toilet to fail in the evening and for me to have to dash to the Home Depot. Couldn't you just take care of one toilet on a Saturday and let me get through Sunday and, and if it's going to fail, let's fail at some other time. But just calling out to God. And that's called complaining for those of you that don't recognize it. And I just waited for the Lord to respond. And Alexis, do you know what the Lord said? It was very interesting what he said. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing at all. Just let me lay it out in all of its glory, in all of its everything. Just, Lord, you. I was just telling the Lord, essentially, you did this wrong. And I'm having to be inconvenienced because somebody's not paying attention here. The reason I'm saying that is that's Jim thinking. That's Jim thinking, okay? Sometimes you have things that happen in your life and you bump into this person because you were not even supposed to be there and all of a sudden, God opens up a conversation. You go, oh my goodness, I was supposed to talk to this person and there was no way I was ever going to get near him. And God did this. But the way this story finished was I went into the Home Depot and I got the part that I needed And then I looked across the aisle, and there was a guy um, that was stacking four-by-eight pieces of plywood. They were half-inch plywood. That's hard to do by yourself. And I I think this has happened to some of you. I found my feet walking towards him before I told my feet to walk towards him. God does that sometimes. You're just kind of, wait a second. How did this happen exactly? And I heard coming out of my mouth, is there any way I can help you? And the guy goes, oh, yeah, it would be a tremendous help. So it turns out that the guy is a handyman. I don't mind mentioning his name. His name's Stephen Hall. He's a wonderful guy. For the next 15 years, he did all sorts of handyman projects for my family and my extended family. It's the kind of guy you would hand him the key to your house and just say whatever you want, take whatever you want, get refreshments. What Wonderful Christian, had trouble with getting pregnant and everything, and Helen and I were praying for him. He lives on the other side of Norcross, never comes to this part of town, 
had a sudden emergency need that he had to run over and get this because of some job he had to do, and we ran into each other. And I, the Lord is so gracious because he doesn't come back to you and say, See? He doesn't do that. He just gently nudges you to say, All things work together for good. All things work together. It's a miracle that all things work together. But he makes all things work together for good. Listen into your mouth when you say, what possible purpose could there be for? Lay that out to the Lord and just say, I don't see a possible purpose, but you are directing my steps and thank you that you are. Now, in that, it's so important to recognize because the Lord is with us, we cannot get discouraged. We are not even in the aisle of futility. There is no such thing as despair. And I'm going to close with this verse. I didn't get to all the verses today, but I want to make sure I get this one. This is a very big one in Romans 8, 31 through 39. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Romans 8, 31. That's so important. That one verse, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. Then who can be against us? When you get up in the morning, doesn't matter what you're doing, God is for you. Because God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God did not hold back His Son. He will freely give us all things. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, rather was raised, who is at the right hand of, the God, of God, who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecutions, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, and then a few that I might add, or more people coming to dinner than you prepared, or the toilet breaking at 10 o'clock at night, or a traffic jam on 285 that backs me up for an hour and a half. Just as it is written, for your sake we are put to death all along, we are considered to be sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It is not in all these things we tolerate difficulty. That's not what he said. He said in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ. And you, say, you might say to me, well, I actually don't experience that in my life. It is something we are all to experience. If we're not experiencing it, we need to get with the Lord and say, I am not enough in you to say I am more than a conqueror over all the circumstances that are in my life. I actually feel conquered by my circumstances. But Paul says we are more than conquerors from all these things that come against us. And then he lists, For I am convinced that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. Now, I just can't emphasize enough, people tend to think, oh yeah, I'm close to Jesus, and they're about 200 yards away from him. As you get closer and closer to the Lord, circumstances don't matter. Height, depth, death, here, they don't matter. He matters. Worship, like John was talking about on his back deck, worship becomes something that is so invigorating, you cannot imagine life without worshiping the Lord. It just can't be imagined without worshiping the Lord. How could you live three days without giving Him glory and praise? You know, when Jesus was alone and the disciples went to get Him some food, and he came, they came back and He said, I have food to eat that you know not of. For my food is to do the will of my Father. I used to read, the first time I read that, I went, yai, that's a rough one. But Jesus didn't speak it as a rough thing. He was saying that when I'm doing the will of my Father, that nourishes me. And when we do the will of our Father, it nourishes and builds us up. So that the closer we get to the Lord, it becomes true that all things are possible. It becomes true that all these things, though they seem to buttress us, are inconsequential. Now, don't get me wrong. If you owe $3,000, you owe $3,000. If you tell the judge it's inconsequential, he's going to say, fine, just give it to me. Okay. But these things don't conquer us. The Lord provides the victory of those things for, over those things when we're in Him. So Jesus makes all things new. I'm going to talk about this again next time. But the two things I want to just summarize we talked about today is the first thing has to do with getting rid of guilt. And that guilt is now in the rearview mirror. Jesus does not mean for there to be guilt abiding in our life. But he, he means if there's a sin, that we confess it immediately. That we receive forgiveness and cleansing from it so that guilt has no residence in us. When we get to heaven, Jesus is going to look at us and hug us, I know. But one thing we're going to be distraught about a little bit is He's so wonderful. How was it that I had difficulty being close to him the way I should have been? Because he is so wonderful. He supersedes these problems. But the enemy sows guilt and condemnation and accusation against Christians. And so to keep that away, we need just to recognize that's not from Jesus and push it away. If there's sin, confess it, but don't give guilt a place to live in your life. And for certain, don't let guilt be a pseudo-humility. Oh, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. Do you know the scripture, after you become a Christian, never calls you a sinner? And yet sometimes you'll hear Christians say, oh, I'm just a sinner, oh, I'm just a sinner. Actually, you're not just a sinner, you're a child of God. You were just a sinner, but you're not a sinner now. And we aren't. Our nature now is changed. So the first one is guilt. But the second one is futility and despair. 
There's no way when you're in the sanctuary of the Lord, when you're close in the Lord, that futility and despair can have a home. And yet some people will allow futility, and I mean Christians, allow futility and despair to have a home inside of them. Has a place. That's the place that you go where you say, I'm just discouraged. And I'll be there for a while and hopefully I'll get out of it. But the Bible says don't let there be a place like that and to recognize that the fullness of Christ overcomes all futility and despair. Overcomes. So no guilt. Guilt has been made new. No futility and despair. That's been made new. And next time we're going to talk about, at least we're going to start talking about the mind being made new. Because it was a big deal that a Christian have a renewed mind. But those things overlap a lot with what we've talked about. Understanding that Jesus transforms us and that it's his power and ability, not our power and ability, that make us different and give us strength. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, we thank you that you made all things new. You know the places that we fall into, the pits, the stumbling places that the enemy puts out. And we ask, Lord, that you touch us in such a way that we don't fall in these places, that we don't give the enemy a foothold of guilt or a foothold of discouragement in our life. But we take those things up to your throne and lay them before you and ask that you continue to make us into the image of your Son, that you be glorified. I thank you for each one in this room. You know that they're walking each one in individual places. And I pray for each individual place that they're walking, that, Lord, you give them special dispensation of your Son, that Jesus be real to them in the classroom, on the highway, in all interactions with people, at work, in everything that's happening, Lord, that you bring a revelation of your Son that exceeds the ability of the natural mind to understand. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.